0: to The New Disruptors, a podcast that's a recipe for happiness. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Matthew Amster-Burton is a food writer and the host of the podcast Spilled Milk. Matthew has a particular affinity for Japanese food, and that led him to promise a trip to that country to his daughter, who stars in his book Hungry Monkey. They took that first trip, and then a second one later with Matthew's wife and Iris' mom, Lori, and that led to a second book, Pretty Good Number One, about eating in Tokyo, He's here to talk about the perils of self-publishing and some of how he's navigated these troubling waters. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew.
1: Thanks. It's so great to be here.
0: And you're actually here in person. I know this is strange yes. for listeners. We're both in the same place. It's a very odd thing in the modern world that sometimes it even sounds better when you have people in different continents in your recording than in your same room. So this is, this is not an artificial technique of making it sound like we're together.
1: I know, but we won't have uh, like, uh, scary Cthulhu Skype noises giving us away.
0: That's right. There's no Skype involved in the recording of this podcast. So I want to talk about um, the publishing side. As you know, you've been a food writer for a while. Yeah, for over, over 12 years now. That's right. And it's a, it's kind of a used to be a specialized field and it's become something that at some level is less specialized because the rise of food blogs and everything meant that everyone decided they need to write about food obsessively all the time. So there's even at some level you have to chart a better course to identify yourself as someone who's a, a professional in that field now.
1: And the, the line between professional and amateur is has blurred Almost, almost to where you can't recognize the line anymore. You know, there are still a few people who make good money as full-time professional food writers. I think uh, one gets laid off every day at this point. And the people making the most money at it now, I think are probably the most successful bloggers.
0: That's very interesting, right? Because, I mean, big magazines like Gourmet shut down. And, oh, yes, you
1: know, I wrote for them for yeah, years.
0: And changed, Ruth Reichl, you know, left, and uh, she's changed her career. And there's been a lot of transformation in the field. And so there's, but at the same time, This is what happens when a ton of people rush into a field. There's less demand for monopoly specialized purposes because people can get the same thing everywhere. Hey, it's happened to pornography. It's happened to food writing, too.
1: That's, yeah, that's exactly the case. No, I, I mean, uh, people ask me all the time, like, uh, you know, how, how do I become a food writer? And, you know, still, even now, they ask that. And the answer is, you know, start a blog. Congratulations, you're a food writer. You're making just about as much as the average food writer.
0: It's so depressing, though, because there's so much wonderful thing to be written about food. Well, there's so much being written
1: about it, You too. know, it's, it's depressing for me. I, I try to I try to be optimistic about this because for readers, it's great. There's never been more good food writing available to you, and most of it is free, and, you know, I don't I don't see that ruining food writing. It is ruining the careers of food writers. And that's sad for us. <laughs> that's right. Um, but, uh, you know, we need to improvise.
0: But that's that's where you get disruption, right? Is that the yes. like Old model disappears. You're left with this. I was having this conversation uh, recently on Twitter about college. And there's this incredible disruption happening there now. It's like. No matter what happens, college is changing. You can't stop that. So whether it's massively online, right. open courses, MOOCs, or whatever's going to happen, there's going to be a subset of people who can afford college in the future, and most people won't be able to the way they are now. And the same thing like food writing. another think thing, the same thing as college, but that it's happened. The disruption happened. We all have to cope with it. There's a demand for it. And your, your first book, when you, uh, after you've been writing for a while, you would pitched this first book after you had your daughter... Iris, uh, about sort of about teaching her how to eat almost and learning from much, her how yeah. kids eat.
1: Yeah. So the, that book, Hungry Monkey, it came, it came out of my blog, Roots and Grubs, which was one of those blogs where a dad posts cute quotes from his kid and talks about what he's feeding his kid and that sort of thing. And, uh, I think my timing on that was really good because, uh, a lot of books about dads and food and food and kids came out around the same time. So it was, It was supposed to be kind of an antidote to uh, scary parenting books about food. Like, you know, if you feed your kid this, they'll turn blue and fall over. And, uh, you know, here are 17 other things that can go wrong that will send your kid to the hospital. And here's like uh, how you have to cut pretty flowers uh, out of vegetables if you want your kid to eat them. It's like the
0: preciousness of it. We we bought some of this. It's like making bento is a great thing like whether yeah. it has Japanese oh. elements or not it's like bento is a great thing for kids but then you look at it like I'm not Martha Stewart A. I'm not Martha Stewart B. I don't have Martha Stewart staff we're not going to spend all day making cucumber florets
1: no like and you have to do a different one for each of your kids in the morning with their favorite character made out of uh, little strips of egg and broccoli and carrots open their
0: mouth and spray cheese in and say exactly very so I wanted to kind
1: of strike a balance between those two approaches with my book and say you know like hey you know me and my kid uh we, we love to eat. We live in the real world. Here's what actually happens three meals a day in, in our house. And, uh, you know, try and relax and have some fun with this process.
0: It's pretty fascinating to me as a father of two boys where, you know, there are mechanical differences in the human body that extend uh, beyond the socio ones that we talk about all the time. It's actually like um, coarse and fine muscle control. Are a big thing, so I'm reading your book about like iris cutting with a knife and all these things. I'm like, man, I think my boys have like hammers for hands.
1: No, no, iris was really late on all of those things. You know, she uh, she started walking when she was 20 months old. Um, and uh, you know, I have a. Uh, there's a part in that book uh, where she's trying to put a Cheerio in her mouth. And uh, did your kids ever do this? Where like, they like pick up the Cheerio, like aim for the mouth, and like hit their nostril? It's like ridiculous.
0: It's thing not not particularly coordinated at early age, right? But you had her doing. I mean, this is also the. I think maybe the benefit of the of the single child versus multiple child households. You actually focus in on her and work through things. Like, I mean, I know you got her her own cutting board, or knife you you made a way for her to work in the kitchen with you
1: right and that's uh you know that that was fun for a while, and then she sort of got tired of it for a while, and I didn't want to force it. And then uh, now that she's nine, and I told her she has to make dinner one night a week, uh, and I'll be her sous chef, and she can order me around. And uh, she, she loves that because uh, she gets to be in charge and tell me what to do
0: for a change. I love that. What kinds of things does she make on her day?
1: So let's see. She's made, like, classic American tacos. Um, she has made uh, Chinese dumplings. Uh, I think the first time she, she made uh, toasted bread with uh, with ham cubes and scrambled eggs. <laughs>
0: That's great. I love that idea. We're going to have to implement that in my house yeah. immediately, uh, except we'd be eating uh, hot dogs and cereal every night. It would be, <laughs> it would be a little bit boring. So you had this experience. You're able to turn it into a book proposal. You got a mainstream publisher to bite, and then uh, and so you worked with of so the conventional route, you know, you're coming from And this was for a while was the model for a lot of bloggers also was there was very little money in blogs are still, you know, right. relatively there's more money in podcasts these days. But, you know, there's still it was the number of people involved in food writing is was vast. And so if you're lucky, you got um, a book deal. Your, your co-host on Spilled Milk, Molly Weisenberg, one of the ways that she rose to prominence before, you know, not. She had an online presence, but she came out with a book that actually, I think, led to her having a much higher online profile. So one fed into the other, but it really made a blip in her career. So this opportunity came along. You're like, I I can write a book. I get mainstream distribution. This will be a mainstream thing. Did you think about alternatives at that point? Or was it like, hey, I can get an advance and we can go on tour and this will be great?
1: No, in terms of self-publishing or any other way to do it, I I never really considered alternatives. And I dithered about doing a book probably longer than I needed to. And it was actually Molly who I I saw at a party at some point before we were good friends. And she said, you should turn your blog into a book. I'll lend you my agent. And she did. So I uh, you know, I did a proposal. I, uh, I sent it to Molly's agent. He said, this looks good. I'm going to send it out. A couple of publishers bid on it. I got an advance. I wrote the book. I turned the book in. Another year later, it was on the <laughs> shelves. And, uh, and, you know, I, as much as I'm enjoying my self-publishing adventure, the last thing I want to do is, uh, is diss my publisher because yeah. they did a fantastic job with my book and treated me really well. And the fact that everything's kind of exploding around them and every other publisher, you know, shouldn't negate the good work that they did with my book.
0: Well, it's timely. That was about, was it five years ago that you did the proposal and then the book yes. came out? 2010? 2009. 2009. So that was still, I mean, so the economic collapse had happened and you have a book out, which I know is also feels like lovely time. Yeah.
1: Well. I believe my publisher was going through bankruptcy right around <laughs> the time either either my hardcover or paperback oh, was coming out.
0: This happens a remarkable number of times. But here's one of the advantages of having like a mainstream, one of the top publishing houses in, in- of them is that, uh, you know, there used to be a lot more money for tours, but you did have a book tour.
1: I did. Yes. And they paid for it and it was a lot of fun.
0: Right. And that's how you, you know, you got that word of mouth, you got the word out and you were on national television as well. You and I was uh, on... The
1: CBS early show, the uh, <laughs> the number three uh, morning show in the country. But that's still many millions of people. <laughs> yes, the, absolutely. The it was
0: great. great thing. But, and so that, you know, so that's kind of the classic author experience. You know, you get discovered... The agent likes it. Publishers like yep. it. You get the tour, which is rarer these days. Five years ago, four years ago, uh, or even ten years ago, rare publishers will fund tours. You get national television exposure. Uh, the book does well. Do you feel like it did well?
1: I think it did. You know, it was Especially not in that time. It was yeah. not a, a blockbuster bestseller mm-hmm. to to the point where they were demanding I write a follow up immediately. But uh, it sold well. I think it met their expectations, and it did very well in Seattle, which made me very happy.
0: And you could go back to them and say, I've got another idea for a book. And that's not – because you did well enough with that, the publisher would consider you for another – Oh, definitely. Thing. Yeah. But so this is where I think we get to the interesting point. <laughs> right. Though. It's like, all right. So you have this idea for so – so you and Iris – I think this is a neat story too is uh, uh, your first trip to Japan with Iris. That was uh, – you would promised her you'd go and I forgot what the circumstance was. It was a promise if something happened.
1: So, yeah. So Iris and I noticed uh, when she was about two years old that we had a shared interest in Japanese food that Iris's mom, my wife, Lori, did not really share. <laughs> and so this was this was like a thing that Iris and I bonded over. Like, you know, we like sushi and, and we like tempura and uh, we like all these Japanese foods. And it occurred to me one day, hey, you know, there's, there's a place called Tokyo where I bet they have some really good Japanese might food. have
0: Japanese food there. It's true.
1: I've always wanted to go there. And, you know, Iris was two when we started talking about this. She didn't know what I was talking about. But we kept on saying, like, things we could do if we ever go to Tokyo, uh, you know, when she was three, four, five. And then when she was five, it was like, okay— you know, you need, to, you need to be six years old. You need to be like a, uh, a
0: master of the bathroom situation. And uh, you oh, need wait, to be... You're going to have to send her in on her own to bathrooms. Right. Any parent knows. Like, there's that dividing point. You cannot bring her in the men's exactly. room anymore.
1: Exactly. And, uh, and you need to be ready to walk a mile or two every day. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, she was, she was the kind of kid who was like, you know, do we have to walk another block? Um, I was that kind of kid, too. I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not picking on her, especially. Uh, but uh, so she uh, she met all of the criteria, and we went to Tokyo for the first time when she was six in 2010.
0: And that must have been, uh, and I know you documented some of that, that must have been a lot of fun, because you'd never been before, no. and, she'd, and you got to see it with her through her eyes, too.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. And we came away from, you know, we were there for just six days, almost the whole time in Tokyo. We went to Kyoto for uh, for a day. And uh, I was just stunned that uh, nobody had told me about this before. You know, that, that Tokyo is, uh, you know, the cliche is that it's like visiting another planet. And it really is. It's, uh, you know, you can describe Tokyo and it does not sound like you're describing a place on Earth. It's um, almost completely free of personal crime, uh, except for bike theft. And it has 35 million people, but you can send your kid out on an errand across town by themselves. And that is socially acceptable and totally safe. And it's almost impossible to find bad food. I mean, that literally...
0: I knew that last one a little bit that like that was one of those things it's sort of like in France now it's changed in France it used to be the thing was in France it was very difficult to find bad food now I understand it is much easier the Americanization and other changes in the French diet and uh, preparation and personal self-worth or something has changed that experience but I've heard that about in Tokyo as well you can go there and but you have to have a broad palate bad food yes, combined absolutely. with willingness to try willingness to accept things that might otherwise seem completely foreign and bizarre to you
1: yes although if all you do is go into uh, noodles Chains and donut places and conveyor belt sushi places—you will still eat very well.
0: It's true. Although I've been in Japanese restaurants in America where they've served me things I have no idea what they were, and it was very challenging. Even in this yes. country, whatever they're offering, like I think that's an octopus bladder. I've never had one before, <laughs> but perhaps I shall try it, and perhaps I shall never try it again.
1: Yes, one of the things I find challenging is the baby octopus, where you eat the whole thing, and the uh, you know the bulbous head is sort of creamy inside.
0: Oh, yeah. There's a, I have a yeah, there's a sense play, and some people listening going, "What are you talking about? Baby octopus is delicious." Oh, absolutely. Other people are running out to the bathroom. <laughs> to speak. But, so, so that was but that was a great experience. I remember you came back and you wrote, uh, you know, you did quite a few blog posts about that right. and thought about that as maybe there's a book in there now. Uh, but that that did not turn into a book as such. It turned into planning for another trip. It seemed like to read your blog that it was like we got to go back.
1: Yes. So it was, you know, I had had this mental list of like, you know, I would like to visit Rome and I would like to visit Greece. And uh, once we had gone to Tokyo, the list changed to I want to visit Tokyo again. And after that, (laughs) Tokyo and then Tokyo. And so uh, Iris and I started driving Lori nuts, uh, talking about this all the time, about how much how great Tokyo was and all the great food we ate and all the cool things we did and all the trains we rode. And uh, and finally, she said, um, okay, what if we what if we all go, you know, I know you guys want to show this to me, but uh, I don't want to just go for a few days. I hate long flights. Um, Let's let's see if we can go for a whole month and live in an apartment and uh, and see what it's really like. Spending several weeks there.
0: What's her food object? She doesn't like raw fish, or doesn't like is a whole aesthetic? She
1: she doesn't like raw fish and and sort of the um, the fishy uh, dashi uh, broth flavor that tends to pervade a lot of Japanese food. That's
0: the Marge Simpson's problem. right The episode, of the all you can eat uh, fish buffet is uh, you know I'm allergic to fish. Is there anything without fish on the menu? No, ma'am. How about the bread? Is there fish in it? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> that is sort of true in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> It's well, yeah. It's a problem if you. I know some people who are allergic to fish and right. can't stand the smell or taste of it, and you just can't walk into compare. You can take them to teriyaki, but everything else right. is supplements. Is teriyaki a thing in Japan?
1: It is not. I was um, not. <laughs> teriyaki is a Seattle and and to a lesser extent Portland thing. It's very but, funny. Uh, so yeah, so in Seattle and Portland, you go into a teriyaki place and you get like a grilled chicken thigh with very exactly. sweet yeah. soy sauce and rice, and it's good. It's not. It's not Japanese at all.
0: That's right. Always run by Asian people, but it has nothing to do with. Usually Asia Korean. Yeah, yes. nothing to do with Asia. Right, more closer to some cuisine in, in Korea, but not quite, because nothing. There's almost nothing we can eat here that's as spicy as things in Korea. Right. Because we would burst to deflate <laughs> most of us. Exactly. Well, it's a funny phenomenon. I mean, there's a long tradition in America of making up dishes or cuisines that you think are I have friends who went to Thailand. Uh, they spent a year teaching there, and they said there is nothing they found anywhere they traveled in Thailand where they lived in one part of the country or anywhere they traveled that to them resembled anything like the Thai food they were accustomed to eating in America. No, it's totally true. It's... But but Japan is different, is you can get food in America that is like the food they make in Japan. So you have some sense of what the cuisine's going to be like.
1: Yeah. So it's that, it's that and so much more when you mm-hmm. go to, when you go to Japan itself, um, you know, you certainly, you will find sushi and you will find ramen. You'll find ramen on every corner and in 18 different varieties, you know, you will find uh, sushi ranging from the conveyor belt sushi place where you can get sushi for less than a dollar a piece mm-hmm. up to a place where you can get 15 pieces of sushi and pay $400 for it.
0: This is one of the things I've always heard about, especially in Asian countries. And I mean, I'd say to a limited extent in Europe, the the quantities, the restaurants that have like essentially unlimited price tags. Like it's one thing. Yeah. You go to a restaurant in London or New York and spend $60,000 on a bottle of wine. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about restaurants you could walk into for a more of a routine meal and spend many thousands of dollars.
1: Well, yeah, the place, uh, Jiro Sushi Place, Tsukiya Sukiyabashi Jiro... That was uh, profiled in the movie Jiro uh, Dreams of Sushi. Um, I have not been to that place. I haven't been to any place like it. But I understand the drill is you are sitting there for about 12 minutes and you get sushi piece after perfect sushi piece. The price is uh, 350 or 400 bucks, not counting drinks. And uh, And that is, your, that is your perfect jewel of an experience.
0: And you're entirely underground at a subway stop. Yes. So it's like the price isn't relative. It's not an ambient. I mean, this is the thing in America. We have so much like sentimentality and symbolism and everything's tied together. That, you know, in order for a meal to be good, it has to be a certain kind of mise-en-scene and you have to, right. everything is like a stage set. It's like, I like the fact that you can tease apart the sentimentality.
1: Yes. no, I, that's something I love about Japan that, uh, you know, there are very fancy restaurants uh, where you have to sort of adopt a ceremonial posture. But, uh, you know, the quality of the food is totally divorced from the atmosphere in which you eat it. You can go to a ramen place and get a life-changing bowl of soup for, you know, eight or nine dollars.
0: As we know from watching Tampopo, one exactly. of the great movies yes. from 30 years ago, I think Tampopo is like a key for Westerners to get some glimmer into what, I mean, the movie's got crazy scenes in it, but the, like the importance of ramen in that movie, I'm like, oh, they're serious about this. Oh yeah, This isn't like a joke, like the importance of ramen and the truck driver and all this interaction there, it's like... That's actually the ultimate goal is that she and her tiny shop can produce this incredibly superior ramen. And that would be a life fulfilling thing for her.
1: Right. And you can you can geek out like that on any kind of food in Japan. And it's socially acceptable to do so. Like, you know, I went around talking to people about food all the time. And uh, sometimes in America, people think it's weird if you want to talk about food all the time. And in, in Japan, it's fine. And so I wanted to you know, I I was amazed that that, uh, you know, there were many books um, where uh, someone goes to to Paris or Provence for a year and uh, has has this uh, romantic life changing experience and uh, many books about uh, the food of Italy and uh, no book that I know of where somebody goes deep into Japanese food. And, J- and Japan from a first-person perspective that's not a cookbook.
0: That is so strange that there'd be that, that absence. I'm assuming, I mean, this is the gatekeeper function, right, is that publishers must not have wanted to publish a book like that. You know, agents may be deterred, authors, publishers you would get the proposals and turn them down for whatever reason. There must have been not a bias against Japan, because there's certainly enough books published about Japan and Japanese food. But it's odd that there's that hole that you could see and say, there's nobody's quite done this. But people weren't trying to talk you into it either. When you talked about doing a book like this, it wasn't everyone's like, great, do a book about going to Japan and eating.
1: It depends which people. I mean, like, you know, my foodie friends said, great. Uh, my agent said, I don't know if that really sounds like a book. And, I, you know, I knew at that point that I wanted to write it anyway, that it was just... Uh, you know, as, as a writer, I'm sure, you know, so- sometimes you have this story that you feel like you just have to tell whether you like it or not. And uh, you're going to sit down and write that story, even if it makes no financial sense, even if only you and two other people are going to read it. And so I felt like this was a story about uh, this miraculous place uh, that I just loved being in and loved eating in so much. Uh, I had to tell that story. And so I went to my agent and well, for, I wrote I wrote a manuscript. Which you're not supposed to do in nonfiction. You're <laughs> supposed to write a proposal. So I, I you know, I sat down for uh, three months or so after the trip, and some while we were there at the uh, at the Starbucks in uh, in Nakano, Tokyo, and just wrote this story and sent it to my agent. And He's like, you know, this is this is good. I'm going to send it to your editor at Houghton Mifflin, and um, and I got uh, this uh, several weeks later, um, this strange reply from my editor at Houghton Mifflin uh, that was uh, mostly gratifying, uh, in which she basically said. I absolutely love this book. I read it three times. We can't publish it.
0: Fascinating. And, you know, it's striated so much. There's not, I mean, there's Costco sells a bazillion books are like one of the biggest booksellers in the country. Barnes Noble, despite its influence waning is still, there's like the mass market thing. There's not room for books that do modestly well. And that's why I asked earlier about, Hungry Monkey, because it did modestly well. There used to be this huge, expansive area for modestly producing books. You know, they were the backbone of publishing empires. Right. And the, big, the, the superstars were actually a smaller component, but helped pay the bills and help fund the first-time stuff that then maybe didn't do as well. But, like, you're in that spot. So they loved the book, but they said, not going to work for us.
1: Right. And so and so, my agent said, do you want to try and sell it to a smaller publisher that maybe a uh, publisher that focuses on Asia, like Tuttle or Kodansha? I said no. I, I think I want to try something different with it. You know, I, I wanted I wanted people to read it as soon as possible. You know, if we weren't going to go through Houghton Mifflin and get that kind of advance, I, I wanted to uh, see what I could do with it myself and see if I could put it in front of people's faces faster.
0: It used to be that magazines were sometimes an outlet for that kind of writing too, is where you do long form. I mean, long form journalism right. has made a huge comeback. But um, there's a book uh, I'll put in the show notes about. The art of uh, like narrative long form nonfiction that has a lot of work by some of the you know John McAfee and Susan Orlean and people like that, but it also explains the process they went through and the person who wrote the essay or the uh, that long piece about not the Aaron Brockovich case but one of the uh, environmental poisoning cases what was it called a civil trial? I can't remember the name of the movie. He'll
1: civil action. A
0: civil action. The guy who wrote the the book on which the the or the, the nonfiction work which I believe was published in a magazine, maybe as a book, and then became the movie. Uh, he did that on spec, essentially. Yeah. He And he spent, I think, seven years working on it. with no. But it's that thing. It was so compelling, he had to do it. But then at the end, there was always this potential something really compelling like that could happen. Now I don't know that that is the end of the rainbow for someone who has that mission. Now you have a different option, the course you took, which is instead of going to a conventional publisher, which is now trying to turn you off, dissuade you because they can't, they know they can't sell it. Like they're not. They love the book. They're not saying this is a terrible book you know, and no one will buy it. They're saying we can't sell this. To right. The it's
1: not. It's have. right. Yeah. It's not that they can't sell it. Period. It's that they can't sell enough of them to make it work for their business model. And I and I totally respect that.
0: The audience uh, has shifted. It's not. Right. It's not buying books in the same way, or as many books, or or what have you. So people, because people are getting these alternate. As we we're talking at the outset, people are getting these alternate ways to get the kind of thing they want. If they want to read food writing, they go online. They buy ebooks, even if the ebooks are coming right. from major manufacturers. But there's this diffusion, and it gave you. you know, there's an opportunity for you to get in on that as well.
1: Right, and I don't want to make this sound like one of these stories where, like, you know, all the publishers said no, but I knew this was going to be a million selling book. I, I knew that this was a weird niche book. That would really appeal to some small number of people, and uh, you know, imagining those people reading it and uh, feeling like you know, for for some person, this could be their favorite book. That that was really what drove me to to finish it.
0: And so you have a book in hand, which is not always the situation one's in, one's off no. and walking around with a proposal. Yeah. How did you make the decision about what you did? Next, and this would have been this is not that long ago. This is last summer-ish, right? The end of summer into the fall.
1: Even yeah, even more recently than that. I think when uh, so what happened was Lori and I went on this uh, this walk. Uh, we were meeting a friend in Seattle, uh, a couple neighborhoods away, and so uh, we decided to walk. It was a nice day. We uh, had like a ninety-minute walk, and she said, "You know, what are you what are you going to do with this with this manuscript?" And I was like, "I think I might self- publish it." And she said, um, "Okay, how are you going to pay for a cover? How are you going to pay for a copy editor? Uh, you know how are you going to do these these, these and these things that your publisher paid for last time? Right. Uh, and I was like, "Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, you know, maybe I could just have a few people read it and make some notes on it." And she's like, "No, do you remember <laughs> do you remember what uh, what your editor and copy editor did for your book last time?" And I said, "Yeah." Um, and so we started, we started totaling up like what kind of money we're talking about and it, uh, got into the thousands. And, uh, she said, you know, if you, if you want to put our money into this project because you believe in it, I support you. And I was like, "I I do believe in it, but, I'm also a personal finance columnist, and if someone came to me and said, should I use my money this way, Should I withdraw draw my savings to, uh, to put into this project that has a very low chance of earning back what I put into it, I would say, you know, maybe consider getting a cheaper hobby.
0: There's also, I should point out, your wife is a librarian. Yes. So she's got, you know, the attitude of putting out a book where you're like, well, friends look at it, whatever. She's like, no, it's going to be a real book. Right. You're going to do a book, it's going to be a real book. Don't, don't, don't bring that thing in my house if it's not a real book.
1: Yes, and so um, I said, what about Kickstarter? And uh and she said, that sounds like a lot of work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And And, she
1: was right. And she was absolutely right. So so she you know, she pushed back a lot on the Kickstarter. I'm glad she did, because it made me, you know, she did the same thing she did when I said, uh, I'm gonna self-publish the book. She said, you know, have you thought about like, you know, you need to be in contact with uh if it's successful, a lot of people throughout the campaign and after the campaign. And those people may be very needy and send you a lot of emails and you hate responding to emails. You know, you're going to have to think about what rewards to offer, and you're going to have to think about whether you want it to be ebook or print or both. All of these things to think about. You know, that Kickstarter is not just uh, you throw up a Kickstarter campaign, they give you a bucket of money, and you run off into the sunset with it.
0: But I know how you think, you were thinking about this not just as a Kickstarter, it was also you wanted to see what Kickstarter was capable of.
1: Yeah, I like, I like to try stuff, especially if it's uh, a, new, a new website. Like, I'm the kind of person who, like, uh, I hear about a new productivity website, I'm going to sign up for the free account and play with it instead of writing something for an hour. Kickstarter seemed like that kind of thing to me. People I knew had done it. I, I wanted to see how it worked.
0: Let's take a break to talk about sponsorship. You know, I call the folks who financially underwrite these podcasts sponsors, not advertisers. It's not a euphemism. Rather, we try to find a good fit between the message of the new disruptors and the folks who want to help pay for the costs of its production and distribution. I try to test or use all the products and services that I tell you about because I want to know that it's a good offering and a good fit. It should be something useful for listeners that I know will help you in your entrepreneurship or general business or personal lives. Likewise, I don't want a sponsor to think that they are reaching the right group of people with their message when they aren't. If you'd like to reach the good-looking, intelligent, and clever listeners of The New Disruptors, we have some sponsorship slots open in future episodes. Go to Podlexing.com. That's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G to reach Lex Friedman, who handles sponsorships for the show, and who co-hosts his own excellent program, Unprofessional. Thanks to our sponsors and to you, dear listener, for making this show possible. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, and this is a great project, but you had something in hand. That's often the problem with, uh, with Kickstarters. There's an ambitious thing at the end. And actually what's funny is I think a lot of Kickstarters are... I need to do this thing where I need a sum of money to cover all the production costs and people I need to hire. In your case, you were pretty modest with what you needed. And I think people forget that there are modest Kickstarters.
1: Yes. With that, I mean, people have been talking so much about the, the Zach Braff and Veronica Mars Kickstarters, of course, and now that... Uh you know, it gives the impression that uh, that every Kickstarter is trying to raise $2 million yeah. and they've pushed out all of the little projects. There are still a lot of cool little projects.
0: I, I mean, there are projects for literally hundreds of dollars. Yes. And those are, but I, and I keep trying to emphasize, I've probably said it too many times in the podcast, is that I think that if you set the right goal financially, that it's entirely based on the number of people that you can possibly reach in your existing audience and the one that you can forge during the campaign. So... Five hundred dollars if you have a hundred people that want to do something that you know that you're involved with. That's great. Five hundred dollars yeah. is five hundred dollars. If you don't have that money or if there's no way for you to get to that position, five thousand dollars is a lot of money in the right circumstance. If you have thousand people to reach and fifty thousand and so forth. So it's I do think people get fixated on the someone raised a million dollars, so I can't raise any money. It's like right. What are you What are you trying to do first? Like what's the missing piece? What's the hole that money could pour in and make work?
1: Exactly. So I think that's that's what made this a good Kickstarter, that I was able to be very clear about, you know, here's what I've done already. Here's the hurdle that I need to get over to make it into a real book. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a $5,000 hurdle. So that's how you can help make this become a real thing.
0: And in the end, you sort of did what people do, though, which is the $5,000, a lot of it went to specific things. So that let you produce a book and not go in the hole to produce it. Exactly. Contributing all your time. But then you have a book as a result. And in the end, you raised, I mean, this is the thing, was modest. You were looking for $5,000 because you weren't looking to fund yourself while you were writing, you'd already written it. Right. You were looking for hard costs, and you had, you know, 381 people, including me, by the way, and Thank uh, you. over $8,000 raised. So you did exceed your goal by quite a bit, and you were able to finish, you know, to pay for all the professional help and work through all the, the things that you needed to to get this book out in the form that you wanted.
1: Yeah, I was incredibly thrilled with the way it turned out. I think I made the goal in four days uh, and then, like you said, went uh, like 60% beyond the goal and uh, ended up using some of that to fund a book tour and some of it to fund a secret follow-up project.
0: Ooh, secret follow-up projects. I love those. That's, I know that's the thing. is like $8,000 does not seem at some level... Like a lot of money compared right. to say a full time living, but it did it gave you the assurance that there was enough interest that these several hundred people because that goes beyond friends or family that goes from your friends or family right. at the core. But these are people who know or don't know you and are interested in what you're doing enough to put some money in the pot.
1: Right. right. So the the money it was pretty easy to see like that it broke down between three different groups. There were the. uh the liter- literally friends and family who some of whom I know you know were never going to read an ebook like uh, you know grandma grandma wants to support her grandson is not going to read an ebook there were uh, people who were familiar with my work either from my previous book or Spilled Milk and then there were people who just heard about the project from Kickstarter or through some social media connected to it and just thought it sounded cool. None of those groups by itself would have been enough to make the goal.
0: That's so key. And I got to say, the podcast—we were talking about it very briefly here in passing. But you've been doing the podcast for three and a half years now. Yes, you're, at, you're over episode ninety. 90?
1: Yeah, we're closing in on episode one hundred. I think we're like ninety-three. What are you going to do for episode? 100? I don't know. I keep having that thought, and like, you know, we should event. we should do something cool for episode one hundred. And then I think about something, I sign up for new some new productivity app. Forget <laughs> about it.
0: <laughs> it's hard to plan. You can yeah. postpone episode one hundred. We're going from 99 to 101 while we figure out what happens. That's right? exactly so, it. It's bad 100. luck. It's like
1: the 13th floor. Yeah.
0: But that's something that uh, – I'll, I'll, let's sidebar into it for a moment yeah. because you've never particularly monetized the podcast. Like it's been – you've had some sponsorship at times. Uh, there, It's been certainly good promotionally. You know, people who want to find out more about Molly or about you, this is something they search. Like, oh, they have a podcast. And, and I know this happens with the show. I got a tweet the other day. Someone said, oh, I just found out about the show and I listened to all 20-something episodes. I'm like, A – Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Unbelievably flattering that anything you're involved with, even though, you know, this is a guest approach, like, okay, the guests I had, like yourself, are interesting enough, but B, it's like there's something compelling enough about what you're doing that it's worthwhile to other people. It's so rewarding to think that what you're doing actually is interesting to other people. Oh, yeah. So you've got this multi-year experience now, and you've hit this point. I know you've tried a couple different things, but certainly the book was one thing. Did you try to promote it? On the show, or was the time period too small to make that be useful to you?
1: No, I definitely um, promoted both both the Kickstarter and the published ebook on the show, and that was really valuable. I mean, I certainly saw a bump in Kickstarter pledges uh, when we. Uh, uh, because, you know, for I always forget that for a podcast, there's, uh, there's, there's like this iceberg of uh, the tip of the iceberg of people who uh, who visit your website and visit your Facebook page. And then there's all these other people, who, your, their only contact with your podcast is downloading it through iTunes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so being able to reach those people, you know, I always have to remember, if I want people, who, uh, podcast fans, to know about something, it has to go in the podcast. I can't just post it on the Facebook so that's page.
0: Show thing. notes and all the other stuff. Because right. Right? I think that's a point you were making about Kickstarter earlier. There's all these different points of contact you have with people who have some connection with what you do, and what's I think fantastic about living in the future, <laughs> yes. the future of the internet, is that I often talk about creators, artists, producers, like makers. This whole sort of category of people who who are doing some kind of thing, and the audience. But the audience is also comprised of creators, makers, artists, producers, absolutely, and that's a different thing than it used to be. So. When I talk about reaching audience, I'm talking about myself, for instance, reaching audience people listening to this, or you're talking about the people who might want a book about eating in Tokyo and what that what the experience of Tokyo is like. But then all of those people in those communities are also they're looking how do we connect back either to us for this topic or to their own audiences, and it's now this interconnected skein and instead of a uh, one way broadcast, you know, megaphone. Hey, listen to me.
1: That's that's a very beautiful utopian and, and true way of looking at. Well, okay.
0: that's the thing. Yeah. I think it's true. This is why I mentioned the XOXO festival a bazillion times mm-hmm. the podcast because it felt like that everyone in the audience was doing just as interesting of things as anyone they'd picked to be on stage. People on stage were conduits and foci of like uh, certain aspects of success or figuring something out. But or examples of, but that's the same thing I think here. So when you talk about these multiple audiences you have to reach, I think about that in the sense of all of this overlapping part that's interested in you and then those things that you follow that you're interested in and you're getting yourself out like, hey, you know, you know Molly is a good example, your co-host, where she's got a whole different sort of audience. Yes. And, and you guys intersect at that point, but you're reaching each other's audiences and they're reaching out to each other as well. Yeah,
1: definitely. No, I think... You know, that, that's uh, thinking about what you said, it, uh, it made me think of something that, that occurred to me the other day, which was, what if, uh, what if I went back in time and tried to describe my job uh, to, like, me when I was, <laughs> when I was uh, 12 years old and, and thought I was going to write books? And, uh, you know, I have this uh, bald guy show up and say, uh, well, OK, in the future, you do write books, but they're e-books. <laughs> and you also write for a blog and you have a podcast. And uh, and I'd be like, OK, but what's my job? Like, no, that is your job.
0: It's the future. Well, I was thinking about, like you say, you know, that portable battery operated cassette player you have? <laughs> it's as if when you talk into it, everyone could, who wants to can listen.
1: Exactly. I was just yesterday reminiscing about uh, my Sony Discman with GP protection. It was the first one that yeah. had uh, that had skip protection yeah. that actually worked. I loved that thing. Yeah,
0: it's funny. Well, it's it is that thing. It's just the distribution mechanism I talk about in this show about. It's not just that everyone can be a creator and the internet lets you share it. It's that it's easier both to make things because the tools are better. Making a podcast today is even easier, even though oh, audio yeah. tools have been around forever. The editing tools, the fastness of the machine speed, I don't need to yeah. have a fancy new Mac Pro. I don't even need one of those. I can be using the slowest, new, cheapest laptop and edit audio. Which, Absolutely. You know, you couldn't 10 years ago. You'd be spending the rest of your life. But so the tools have improved. The ways of funding thing have improved, which you're an example of. The means of production have improved. The way you make physical stuff, when that's a step. Oh, definitely. And the means of distribution. And you've hit all of those things. Is you've got the the audience through the podcast and your writing. And some of it writing... On your own stuff, and some of it writing for others who are, you know, being paid for. You've got the fundraising through Kickstarter. You've got the production and the distribution part in how you approach self-publishing. So you fund this thing. Now the fun part starts, right? All you have to do is make an ebook. That's easy. Isn't <laughs> That's it? right.
1: So I had to. I finished the manuscript, which was almost done at the time of the Kickstarter. I. Had found a, uh, a copy editor that I wanted to hire. There are a lot of good freelance copy editors mm-hmm. out there these days because a lot of people have been laid off from <laughs> so publishers and like newspapers. 5,000 newspaper copies yep. are dying for it. Uh, and uh, there is no substitute for using a professional copy editor. I, I just read uh, Guy Kawasaki's book, Ape author, publisher, entrepreneur, which is a really good book about self-publishing. And his experience was exactly the same as mine. He had taken the manuscript for his book and, uh, you know, let uh, some smart friends and family read it and mark it all up. And they found a bunch of errors. And he thought, great, this thing is in really good shape. I'll just send it off to the copy editor and we'll be done. The copy editor sent back, in his case, uh, Mm 1,500 corrections. I think I got about 700
0: yeah, this is totally, totally in keeping. It's like hiring an indexer. A lot of books don't have indexers now because the right. cost is too high. And I used to work with a bunch of people in computer book publishing, and we would always have this debate: Can we, you know, will the publisher kick out the like two thousand dollars sometimes to index a book, or are we going to do it ourselves the last minute? And we would sometimes do it ourselves. Yeah. And you know, you'd almost laugh at yourself at it because you get the professional index back. And you're like, this is a whole thing. This is like levels beyond levels. And the same thing is true with someone who's a copy editor, it's a different brain. I mean, some people can move between writer, editor, copy editor, researcher, but really there's a kind of focus and they become a collaborator. If you're lucky, they help you fix the weak parts of your arguments, the weak parts of your language, as well as typos and grammar.
1: Right. So I think, you know, that I I realized as people have been asking me about self-publishing, that that's that's like a real decision point, Um, you know, that if you want your book to be good, you have to hire a copy editor, and copy editor is not cheap. You know, I paid fifteen hundred dollars yeah. and my book is relatively short. So You know, it, I, you can certainly... pay I think
0: from $25 to $75 an hour for a copy. Right. Editor. It tends to center in the middle, maybe a little towards the lower right. end, depending on the market. But because you've got the internet, I mean, did you wind up hiring someone local or did you hire? No, I hired someone in Kansas. That's great. <laughs> Thank you for boosting the Kansas economy. <laughs> yep, there also, you go. Ultimately, all copy editors will live there and work remotely. I've actually thought there'd be a great service that does not exist yet. I'm stunned it doesn't, which is blog platforms could intercede a paid copy editor process in there. You'd write a blog entry, you'd hit oh. submit to copy editor, and you'd pay some rate, and oh. then it would give you back a marked up version. I feel like I've publish. seen this. I just There's, tried something the other day that has this. But it has is to be part of the platform. Like, I want WordPress oh, plus, sure. plus copy. Because think about that. I mean, as a service, you know, a lot, a lot of people aren't making money off their blogs, but there are a fair amount of you know corporate blogs. There are people who... It's a promotional tool for their brand, for themselves. When you write a blog entry, it's because you enjoy doing it. But you also have a million things you want to make sure people are aware of. So there would be some benefit if you had to pay 5 or $10 a blog entry to get it copy edited. So anyway, I feel like it's a, such a missing piece between the thing that differentiates a blog entry and a professional piece of writing yeah. is often not the writing. It's often the editing.
1: Oh, certainly. And it's
0: not to be critical to the writer because I'm a writer and I'm an editor. It's not like editors are magic. It's just having that other set of eyes that finds the weaknesses that you can't see because you're, you're producing it.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think if, uh, you know, I, I am totally sympathetic to someone who, who, you know, writes their novel and wants to self-publish it because they want to have something up there with their name on it and doesn't want to drop $2,000 on the privilege. That's a hobby, you know, when it becomes like your, your business, your, your life's work. Uh, you're going to be plumping down for copy editing.
0: Although one has to remember that Joe Rowling's – which book was it? Book four or five of Harry Potter had the wrong order of spirits of ghost images coming out of the wand. And you're like, we know people read that before it was published. Maybe not enough. But so you get past the copying stage, you've produced a final manuscript, and uh, this is surely the easy part. You just import it into InDesign and hit go, <laughs> and it gets uploaded automatically wherever, and you collect money, and you're done.
1: Right, and exactly. exactly like. So, oh, boy. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's still the Wild West out there in so many ways. Yeah. So, um, so in, it's InDesign easy, is great. It's easy to produce a PDF. Let's say that, right? Like, relative, like, PDF. you
0: could hire someone for a page rate and do it in design. You could do it in Word. You could do it in Pages. A lot of programs. You can make a PDF, but a PDF doesn't get you much of the way there.
1: No, um, because uh, you know, a paged book and a and a reflowable ebook are very different things. And I, you know, the the, the tools for creating both of them from the same uh, base uh, document are getting better. I don't think it can ever be fully automated because they're just two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can you can export from InDesign to to an EPUB file. You know, it wasn't good enough for me. And uh, you know, it, it had it had
0: bugs. Because EPUB, I should point out most people know this, but EPUB is a standardized book format right. for doing what you're saying. Reflowable. It's like a it's like an HTML document designed for book readers. It's, I mean because essentially HTML Inside, or it's XML, yes. but it's, it's markup language and there's uh, style sheets and so forth. But the thing is, this is we're going to get into this too, is that EPUB is a standard, but there are all these wrappers around EPUB. Like, No two bookstores sell encrypted or sell uh, protected books that can only be read on locked devices use the same right. packaging around it.
1: Although I, I was able to publish my book on all the stores without DRM.
0: Oh, that's great. That's um, a little bit new, isn't
1: it? It is a little bit new, although I was, not... I was surprised how easy it turned out to be. It used to be um, I a had some hiccups deal. along the way, but uh, all, of them, all of them now just have like an on-off switch that you select when you submit. Uh, do you want DRM on this or not? Oh, that's great. But having said that, every store still works differently. I mean, right. submitting submitting to iBooks is a ridiculous process. Uh, submitting to Amazon is probably the easiest, but they use a completely different packaging format. They don't use EPUB. They will convert your EPUB, but then you have to double check and make
0: sure everything still looks right. I've played with that because they give you a simulator to look what yes. it's going to look like, and you can download it as a file. You can look at it in a kindle simulator on your computer and you can look at it online so, but it's crazy it's crazy but that was partly because they have the most legacy stuff to support yes. you don't want to give up 50 million or right. whatever kindle readers because your thing only looks good on a kindle fire
1: right and then my book has uh, a few japanese characters in it oh my God. and uh, i if you're writing a book uh, I recommend avoiding that if possible. You know, I got I got very huffy about it. Like, uh, you know, millions of people read these languages, but the fact is, Barnes and Noble in particular does not support them very well.
0: That's the and weirdest thing uh, in the yeah. world, though. It's a, I just wrote a piece for the Economist as we're recording this called um, about what is ASCII, and you know, ASCII was didn't have any character. It was designed in 1963. It's 50 years old. A, happy birthday! Yep but it was not designed for internationalization. And that led to this, even though ASCII, American ASCII was standard, there are a million different encodings. If you open any word processor that has a pop-up Oh, yeah, menu, like, like
1: Windows 1252
0: like, and- You know, ISO 85, 80, so there's- Yeah, so, yeah. Unicode was supposed to solve that. Right. And, and gradually, Unicode is now, which I did not realize, it is now 75% of all web pages served, according to one large, um, you know, site that's collecting site information, is UTF-8, a, one popular method of encoding web pages. So, that's it's taken over the yep. web, and it means you can put in anything that's of like one of a hundred thousand characters. You still have to rely on the computer or mobile device being able to display it. But that's sort of solved on the web, web right. browser, laptop. But but so the ebook reader, ebook formats have not solved well. That that's that's way.
1: exactly. I mean, that's exactly it. It's like developing for the web in 2002 oh god so you know and all an (laughs) ebook reader is is kind of a dumb web browser Mm -hmm. um and some of them you know some of them are smarter than others Mm -hmm. Um, but i mean they are quite literally web browsers because it's literally html inside those ebook files and you know some of them are using uh you know janky old rendering engines and some of them have mediocre or no support for international characters And, you know, you can you can see very clearly they get better with each version. And, you know, at this point, I you know, you don't have to worry about whether when you load up a Wikipedia page and it has Chinese characters on it, whether it'll appear correctly on your on your Android device or your iOS device or your Mac or your PC. Basically, it's all Unicode. All the modern browsers do fine with it. We're not there yet with, uh, with ebook readers, especially the e ink readers.
0: And that's going to be a problem because those things, there are hundreds of millions of those. I think there's hundreds of millions of the original first generations of Kindles. It's up to that number, isn't it? It's at least 100 million of those. It's a huge number. Those are not upgradable. I mean, right. those are updatable. So we're still going to have the legacy of people. Like, that's where it gets weird, right? Is that it's not like, I mean, there's something about today where you can say, I'm creating a web page. And I could use responsive design. I can mm-hmm. use cascading style sheets. I can use mobile previews. I can do blah blahdy blah de, blah I can do JavaScript. And, I mean, I just redesigned parts of the, the magazine website to make it a little more mobily responsive. And right. I learned a lot. And But what it told me is that you can make a web page that... Renders well to very well across a huge range of devices, so long as they were made after like two thousand five. Right, but we're not there yet. So when you make an ebook, you have to think about you know do you do twelve different versions or what do you have to wind up doing for that?
1: Well, and first of all, I should I should also specify my book is really simple in mm-hmm. terms of layout. It is you know one it one is column. a narrative yeah. nonfiction book with no pictures. And still, you know, I spent weeks working, get, try, sweating over every character to get this right. You know, partly because I care a little too much about that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it was it was all new to me.
0: That's part of what the Kickstarter for, though. It, it, oh, like, absolutely. Paid to, people said, we, we're going to pay you to care about this when you do your yes. work. Yes.
1: So I uh, I just forgot what the question you actually asked me was.
0: I'm sure I asked. You, oh, was it, how <laughs> was many? Didn't you have to create a whole bunch of different versions? Right. the end so, to tweak it for the different. Yes, space? and I'm
1: trying. I'm trying to script some of what I'm what I've done at this point because now, like uh, one of the great things about eBooks is uh, that you can fix them when you find a, a mistake that sneaked through, and that still happens. Uh, I have friend. Dev Gmail chatted with me today and said I found a, I found a typo on page 100, and I said great thanks a lot. And uh, so yeah, so I have a I have a version that uh, that works for Kobo and iBooks, a PDF version for print, which is a new thing that we'll talk about in a minute, a PDF version for the web and uh, Mobi uh, version for uh, Amazon. That's oh,
0: yeah, the M-O-B-I, right? Because yes. Mo- Because you need to submit Mobi as their internal format for now, but Amazon has a new format they're moving to that's a more advanced version.
1: Right. EPUB, KF8. Yeah,
0: it's like an EPUB uh, 3 or something modification, but that won't be available for anything but... Their most recent models, like the Fire and Beyond, I think.
1: Yes, I think that the the uh, like the Kindle Paperwhite supports mm-hmm. some of the some of the KF8 features. So have
0: yet another. Although it's supposed to be, it'll be better, but it'll again be a unique format you'll have to deal with for Amazon from the same origin point. Um, right, That's a so a lot of different versions. So you have to have version is. control. So every time there's a typo. What's
1: your process? Oh, I... I <laughs> finally, I think, come around to a process that uh, that doesn't drive me quite as insane. So I, I keep, like, a personal wiki page where every time I start a new uh, version... Well, every time I close out a version, I start a new list and give it a new version number. So I think I'm at, like, version 1.1.5 now. And uh, we'll list off the uh, the changes that constitute uh, the, uh, the change log from the previous version. Uh, so I have a record of what I've changed. I then... Have to update the uh, the PDF and the EPUB version in parallel, which you know as a as a former programmer makes me hate myself so much means
0: you have separate source documents. I have now. separate PDF source documents,
1: now. and they they have gotten out of sync, and I had to carefully put them back into sync. And uh, I, I know there's a better way, and I'll figure it out. There but, may not be though. we've had. Yeah.
0: i kind of talked to a lot of people about it. Uh, mentioned on um, a link in the show notes again is uh, Ren Caldwell, who's the uh, Super Guide producer for MacWorld. Sure. She gave this great talk last October at the at the uh, Singleton Do conference about the workflow they use at Macworld, and it was hilarious. We were laughing in the audience. You can hear when you listen to the talk because <laughs> it's like she's well. We tried this, and she puts up a slide and the number of steps, and direct, and then and then we tried this, and like we're then this, and now we're down to this, which has. Fewer steps and the least irritation, but it's still crazy. And, oh, now, good. you know, and yeah, so you're not behind like, that makes me feel better. Yeah, eight months later, I keep hearing about they've refined their process. Um, you know, pages made some improvements. Actually, one a pro tip for people listening to the podcast is actually Apple's Pages program is one of the best ways to produce multiple outflows that are not horrible. If you want to do a PDF <laughs> yep. EPUB, it's the weirdest thing because it's not advertised that way. And their EPUB isn't perfect, but you can go in and tweak the EPUB manually that it produces to fix some of its deficits.
1: Yeah, so the the program I use for tweaking the ePub is called uh, CIGIL, mm-hmm. uh, Sigil. S I G I L. It's a multi-platform open source program that uh is really is really well done and speaks epub very well and you can uh, I also I also use that to fix when I when I uh, buy an ebook and don't like the formatting or it's got errors or something I'll, I'll uh, pull it into Sigil and fix it and put it back on my Kindle.
0: So when do they release the crowdsourced uh, Wikipedia style version of Sigil <laughs> that will like when you make changes it'll push them to the author? I
1: <laughs> I had this idea that there there should be a site that uh, that just you submit diffs for ebooks that you yeah. buy that yeah. have horrible formatting errors which still happens way too often. And so when you buy a book, you should be able to go to this site and apply the diff. That's
0: beautiful. That's like Code Monkey. Remember CodeMonkey was yes. an extension for web pages? Hey, yes, yes, exactly. You can make uh, ugly Grease web page, Monkey. Grease Monkey, yeah. Yes. So you can make ugly pages look wonderful. Yes, it and would be exactly would that. Them, this is an idea. Yeah. You should follow it up. So there are advanced. So the workflow is horrible, production is horrible, management is horrible, but you managed to get out multiple books and I know um, the, the the next stage of course is like how do you get them in the store? Do, you had mentioned um, in, an, in an email about uh, working with intermediaries as one of the issues, but it sounded like you wound up working directly with the biggest stores.
1: Yeah, and that's that's um, partly, you know, just being kind of neurotic about it, but also that there were there were specific things that I wanted to be able to do that I couldn't figure out how to do through intermediaries. So the, the big intermediaries are Smashwords and BookBaby. I think Smashwords is by far the biggest. You submit your stuff for free. They sell it on their site, and they also push it out to iBooks, uh, Sony, Barnes and Noble, uh, and Kobo, Amazon. They still want you to do yourself, and you know they, there's obviously some really nice advantages to that. They don't charge very much. That you know they take a percentage of your royalties, which I think is a typically 10. You know, and you only have to submit things once, and they push it out to all these stores. The problem is that you lose control over like I want to. Uh, You know, I want to look at the pricing in all of the different markets and and make sure uh, it's not being priced ridiculously somewhere, which can happen. I want to make sure it doesn't have DRM anywhere. When I tried using uh, one of the intermediaries, uh, it ended up with DRM on in one of the stores and they could not figure out how to turn it off. And uh, so, um,
0: but somebody who has less i mean you have programming background you 're willing to be a perfectionist, you want to devote the time to this because this is a learning exercise for you for a future book or consulting or whatever you right. wind up doing you have you have an, uh, a, you know, both obsessiveness which I have and a business model which I have which is like figure it out because then you can do more with it yeah for somebody who is like, I'm writing the book, and I got someone to do an InDesign file for me. It's like, what do I do now? Are these reasonable choices for that? A- absolutely,
1: person? yeah. And and to call what I do a business model is, is way too generous. <laughs>
0: it's um, a future business model. It's, but you're investigating – you have an interest in investigating this for – you know, you've got outlets to write about it and then it will inform other stuff you do too.
1: Yeah. So I submitted directly. Amazon is, is very easy to submit to Kobo is very easy. Barnes and Noble advised me not to try to sell on their store because of the language <laughs> issue. Um, <laughs> I mean, meaning, meaning foreign language, not foul oh, language yes. and iBooks. Uh, you have to download a Mac only app and uh, make this package in Apple's format and submit it. Uh, and oh, it's
0: So Apple's using tools that are like 10 or 12 years old for they, some of them and some of them are new and some are not right? but the, you're still dealing with the cruft of it's same thing for the app store yeah. you want to sell an app through Apple you're working with stuff you're like this has not been updated since exactly. 2001 and the iPhone came out in 2007 what's wrong here?
1: Having said that the iBooks I, I had to call iBooks support and have them fix uh, something with my mm-hmm. listing and they were amazing um, oh, nice. I, uh, you know, a person a human answered the phone immediately they uh, they knew, we're a technical person, they knew exactly what I was talking about um, they said, well, I'll get it to this person, I got an email immediately from that person saying, we're fixing this, it'll be fixed in three days, three days later I got an email from them wow. saying, we fixed it, let us know if we can do anything else.
0: That's kind of phenomenal that's um, great. Well, and you've had some positive experience with them, I mean we talked oh, yeah. about all the horrors, but so you got through this whole process, I know that one thing you'd, you'd mentioned to me was that, uh, that Knowing having an idea of what's been sold compared to the mainstream publishing world, I mean, I've had you know computer books published, and I get statements that show essentially what happened a year ago, and I might get a check someday for that. But you, you have a different set of tools available to you. How does that affect? Does it affect any choices, or is it just nice to know? Well,
1: yeah, I get the uh, every every six months I get the uh, the paper um, sales report from uh, from the publisher of Hungry Monkey. to
0: by a mainframe computer. Oh, absolutely. It's like, it's like some device that doesn't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, with like that OCR font. Um, usually, usually showing these days that I've sold negative copies because yes. bookstores have been returning it.
0: Vino um, is coming over to take the money out
1: of you. exactly. Yeah, the repo man. This uh, what you get from the uh, back-end reporting engine of, of like the Kindle store is is much, much nicer, but it can also turn you into an addict. So because it updates every few hours, you can see how many you sell. Oh no! Um, And uh, so like, you know, I only I only sold two today instead of five. What's wrong? You know, my book is dead. So that's that's a lot of fun and can uh, and can eat up your whole day. But, you know, it lets you it lets you see almost in real time, like whether whether the choices you're making about how you market and price your book are having an effect
0: oh that's interesting so when you because part of the reason to track it live or to do this is i know it's the obsessiveness my dad and i run a service called uh, books and writers that we've been running Mm -hmm. for years it does amazon ranking tracking sure it's because it's sort of very very much a little sideline thing but there was a point at which it was very difficult to get information of any kind so we sort of assembled things now there's just less and less useful information out there you can go to amazon as an author authors should know you can register with Amazon, go there, and you get access to Bookscan information about, which it does not include, Amazon will show you their Kindle sales information, and they will show you Bookscan, which is about 75% of all books sold. It's like everything at retail, but doesn't include Sam's Club and some other, I don't think it includes Costco. There's a couple big retailers which don't affect most of us anyway. And it was very useful for me when I had a book out a couple uh, years ago. I actually could get direct information, the same as my publisher had, that was practically up to date that was showing what's going on. So when an event happened, you go on TV, you do your book tour because you funded your book tour, as you said, for this, partly with the Kickstarter. You could see if there was an effect. You would talk about it. You'd see if people went and bought it.
1: Right. And I can also see like if someone uh, posts uh, on, their, on their food website or their blog, you know, check out this new book. I can see, you know, by the end of the day, whether people bought it probably because of that there's no way to see that there's no um refer or log or anything like that but you can you can make an educated
0: guess well there's a great thing too i should point out that i like with ebooks is that when they're sold for a high enough price you know they're like in the and what is i don't remember what uh,
1: it's the the range uh, assuming assuming i know what you're going to say next the range is uh, 299 to 999 that's
0: pretty much yeah so even a book i know some of the computer books i've done with the take control series we've charged Fifteen and even twenty dollars for them, but mostly, you know, the most of the center in the ten to fifteen dollar range. But it's that issue of how much you get to keep. So, right. when you sell a mainstream book, when Hungry Monkey sells, you know you're going to get thirty-seven cents or fifty-two cents or a buck. So you sell a thousand, you're like, well, that's you know, it's nice, that's whatever. But you sell two hundred copies of an ebook, and you can get excited about.
1: That. Oh, very excited, yes. And so that was that was one thing I was really curious to see, and not super optimistic about. Like, you know, I sold. 381 copies of the book through the kickstarter basically you know everybody who contributed to the kickstarter got a copy of the ebook and so i was able to say great i made 381 sales that's wonderful (laughs) right is anybody going is there going to be anyone left who's interested enough to buy the ebook after it comes out and is priced at 499 and so far yes yes and, uh, Do you want
0: to reveal anything about your sales? I'm curious. Um, about.
1: sure. I'm I'm willing to talk about it. I've I've been selling pretty steadily, averaging about five copies a day. Mm-hmm. And. That feels like a lot to me.
0: Well, for the scale of the book, you know, without a marketing budget, for the scale of the book and for the return you get on it, that's hundreds of dollars a month. Absolutely. So it's not – I mean this is always the thing that's been talked about with – as a book writer, like when, like when you write over the last 20 years the way contracts are written, if you write magazine articles, you write newspaper or whatever – you don't get the rights to that. I think the Seattle Times, actually, which you and I have both written for, right. they're actually fair. I think they still actually give us rights back after 60 days. I haven't written for them in a couple of years, but that was oh, that, that was always my contract. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, that, that's the issues about writing for newspapers. But, the, but most magazines, most publications you write for and in most other newspapers, the, like the New York Times, you write and it goes away. You never get access to it again. You can maybe right. get it for a collection or something. But when you do a book, um, you have royalties. You get royalties from sales. You get advances. When you are writing for a publisher that's paying you in advance. But even when you do it for yourself, there's this notion that as a book author, you want to have a whole bunch of books out there at different stages. And if you're lucky, you have, you know, not all of us can be Isaac Asimov, of course. But let's say you could have 10 or 15 books that you update in a different schedule. Some may never need to be updated. This could be the first one of those. And if you have 10 oh, yeah. books that are selling five copies a day in ebook form, that's actually kind of starting to approach a living. It's a very interesting
1: idea. So you're saying I have to write nine more books. I'm sorry, That's, but
0: you're getting it faster at it. <laughs>
1: that seems like a lot of work. I, right. I think there's some new productivity apps I need to try.
0: Well, where is Hungry Monkey in terms of its electronic status?
1: Oh, this is... I I don't think I'm quite allowed to talk about this. So it's complicated
0: because it's yeah. owned by a conventional publisher. I mean, it's I can, I
1: can tell stuff. you how, how it is right now and then uh, <laughs> we can talk about it off the air. <laughs> That's <right>. um, <laughs> Right now, it's it's sort of you know it's a backlist ebook title, and those those are sort of the orphans of the orphans of the book world, in the sense that they the pricing on them is too high. Yeah, uh, you know it's still it's still selling for ten dollars or more.
0: You're saying because it's the the book uh, when it's as an ebook the book is priced too high because of what what stated is in print.
1: Right, so if if you want to get a uh, a paper copy of *Hungry Monkey*, you can get a new copy now for I think five dollars, mm-hmm. you know, uh, remaindered, or uh, or a used copy for one cent plus shipping. Right. But if you want if you want the ebook. That's still $10. The industry hasn't
0: caught up with that sort of dynamic nature of like they need to be constantly scaling. Right. And it's
1: only available in the US. Mm -hmm. And it's riddled with errors.
0: And this is part of the reality uh, again, too. And and I saw this change in contracts I was signing in the early 2000s is what does out of print mean? Right. I don't know. And different contracts say different things. Contracts written in 1994 are totally different than 2013. And there was a point at which it would say, as long as a copy is in print, then it and but then it's like so some publishers were actually using print on demand, it would print a few copies right, keep in the warehouse, push them out so that they would retain the rights forever, where honestly, this is something in every industry artists who do copyright and it's sold through a label, a music label, whatever a book a, cha- a publisher, eventually the rights are supposed to revert, the thing eventually in the old days would stop selling unless it was something really extraordinary, and the rights would revert you know that musicians can after i think it's some number of years is it twenty nine years 19 years, there's a point in which there's a right of rescission, and they can demand the rights back from the label. It's a fascinating thing, not often understood. And then they can republish and do – in the music industry, there's compulsory licensing right. where artists can re-record their own work and pay a statutory rate for releasing it. They can't use the original recording, but they can make other recordings – it seems very limiting where we're at in the book world that they could keep your book hostage and not to criticize the publishers. Right. So, no, okay.
1: I, again, I don't, I don't blame them for no, not, not wanting it's to go, a, go a, back
0: and put in a lot of yeah, work on it. It's an a, economic decision, but your book is essentially hostage where it might have another life, but it's not advantageous to them either to facilitate it for you or to make the changes. Right.
1: Well, I, I would like to see that happen. Let's put it that
0: way. <laughs> That'd be good. It's tricky. Well, look, so we've talked about this whole subject. You are now very well poised, it seems to me, To do your next nine books. uh, (laughs) But no, you've learned an enormous amount. Yeah, no, I
1: am excited to do this again and not make the same mistakes that I made this time.
0: Can you save, I mean, I'm always curious about the learning curve. Is it going to take you, are you going to save 90% of the time or is it more like 50% of the time? Because there's so much you talk about that some of it was dead ends and just the learning curve. Some of it's like, no, this is just the thing. This is what iTunes uh, submission process for iBooks is like.
1: Yeah, most of the time still was still spent on... uh, taking taking the trip and writing the manuscript Mm -hmm. and uh and the editing and then I, i don't think that can be rushed any more than i did I think I could maybe save twenty
0: percent of the time. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting because, that, and then this is the uh, always begs the second question: is once you figure this out, now you're valuable. You know how to do Kickstarter. You know how to get a book. Is this suddenly the you know Matthew Amsterburton publishing empire for food writers who have uh, for the, where the rainbow is not enough?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, no, I haven't. I haven't had anyone approach me uh, and say, can can you can you turn me into as uh, as big a star as uh, as pretty good number
0: one?" <laughs> not yet, but you know that's the thing: is if there's enough money at the right level and there's enough expertise and you can leverage it for someone else then you have those skills that you can that you can offer i mean that is you know this, i love a cottage business i love having it oh I mean, me too i have multiple cottage businesses right now and i love that scale but there's also there's that point if you figure out there's an inflection point where if i did this for 10 other people i actually i'm doing a great thing for them and maybe i'm doing a great thing for me too
1: yeah, no. I had this. I had this uh, thought after after I learned how to make a podcast, and I made all sorts of beginner mistakes with that. Also, that uh, once I figured it out, people would come to me all the time and say, uh, "Can we hire you to help us uh, do our podcast?" Hasn't happened yet.
0: <laughs> it's we're in the second wave of the podcast right. renaissance right now. What's funny is, uh, dear listeners, is. Matthew's been podcasting for so long that he came to me for advice That's true. in 2009 because I apparently knew something then I forgot it all and I've had to reload <laughs> it all and thank you for your tolerance <laughs> listeners while I have well Matthew thanks for sharing this experience it's wonderful I will put in the show notes all the URLs and how to reach you and so forth but let's get a copy everyone go out and get pretty good number one it's a really fun read and it makes me I had never had a particular desire to go to Japan before I was interested but like every when it comes back you're like part of this wave I read the book and I'm like wow, I really want to check out this place that's so different from my normal experience.
1: Thank you. I mean, that's that's what I wanted to sort of be the book equivalent of me grabbing you by the lapels and saying, you've got to go check this out. Come on, I'll show
0: you. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Glenn. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email new disruptors at mule If you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.mule Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.